Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Michael Mary, University of Amsterdam. Michael Mary, welcome to Pipeline. Thank you. So I'm really quite interested in your story, and maybe a great place to get started would be if you could tell our listeners uh, how you got started doing the work that you do, right? Uh, Philosophical work in education. What was your trajectory? Well, my trajectory, probably like a lot of people in the field, was an indirect one. So uh, going back many, many years, I have a humanities, liberal arts background, so I was steeped in a whole range of different subjects uh, and disciplines. Uh, I took immediately to philosophy uh, from an early age, but I think I, given my background and given what the subjects that I was most familiar with, I focused in the early years of my undergraduate studies on theology. Theology always, well, historically having been the home for much of what philosophy has had to say. So I took a, an undergraduate degree in, in theology and that expanded outwards to comparative religion and religious studies more broadly. I found myself doing philosophy of religion before I found myself doing philosophy of language, before I found myself doing uh, political philosophy and and probably found my home, uh, broadly speaking, within ethics. Um, so before I knew I was going to do anything with education, I was actually uh, following courses at UW-Madison in bioethics. So I was taking courses from folks like Dan Wickler and Norman Faust uh, on all kinds of issues ranging from informed consent and paternalism to uh, what is an egalitarian approach to resource distribution. This, and I honestly thought that um, I was going to take up a career as a bioethicist. And for very, very uh, practical uh, reasons, did not pursue this for the simple reason that at the UW, the, um, the program that was offered was not altogether coherent. They had some of the leading people, leading bioethicists in the world teaching at UW and still do. But there was no possibility for me to really pursue a coherent PhD in the field. And I didn't feel like it would be in my best interest or my family's best interest at the time to uproot and travel somewhere far away to pursue that at another institution. Mm -hmm. So I began very sort of pragmatically looking around for what sorts of programs I might uh, complete a PhD in that were suited to my background. Okay. So I, I started making phone calls. Uh, I started uh, networking, as it were, and I, and I had some very, very helpful contacts who uh, uh, suggested that I talk to so-and-so and so-and-so, and it turns out that these folks were both um, involved in education in one way or another. One of those people was Daniel Pekarski, who's since retired, but Dan Pekarski was one of my first uh, philosophy of education uh, professors at UW, and I took a course of his in uh, moral education. 
And uh, Bukarski was fantastic, a very inspiring teacher. And uh, shortly thereafter took a course with Fran Schrag, who also is now retired, um, and ended up uh, through uh, one maneuver or another working with Harry Brickhouse, who was in the philosophy department, and I was housed in the educational studies department. But because of um, a non-budgeted appointment, which had had recently gone through, I ended, it made it possible for me to work directly with Harry. And so uh, I was, over the course of my PhD, uh, sort of going back and forth between these two departments. The philosophy department on the one hand, where I was taking a number of courses in metaethics and other, uh, other courses, but also in educational policy studies. And that's sort of how I quite accidentally discovered that I was doing philosophy of education and that my interest very very nicely mapped onto this terrain, but all the while, and, and even to this day, informed by a range of other disciplines, which probably is best explained given my background, but also just sort of the hybrid mm. uh, approach to things that I often take. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's that's very good. I mean, uh, thinking about the way in which you're able to bring together uh, very many different interests uh, as you uh, uh, began this very interesting approach to work in philosophy of education. But speaking about those interests, I mean, you mentioned uh, having these sort of different disciplinary backgrounds and trying to look for a fit in the PhD program. Uh, have you found good spaces for engagement with those disciplines and, and interests in the work that you've done in philosophy of education? Absolutely. Um, and a lot of this is, is uh, only what I can recognize in hindsight. Um, so seeing, for example, the intellectual linkage between what I do now and what I was doing five years ago or even 15 years ago wasn't, it wasn't necessarily apparent to me at the time or even the various topics that I've written about because I, like some other folks in the field, I jump around quite a bit topically and pursue my, my interests that I might have in any given year. But I certainly can recognize um, my approach to philosophy of education being very much informed by comparative studies, by political theory, political science, sociology, urban geography. Um, but I think I probably have been reading through the past 15 years or so, mostly within social and political philosophy, but it's always in conversation with or engaging with folks who are working in these more empirical fields. I am currently housed in an extremely empirical department, and by extremely empirical I mean it is um, entirely quantitative sure. in orientation. So uh, folks that I work with here, all of whom are extremely nice people, are measuring everything mm -hmm. and uh, their approach to some of the same topics that I examine in my own work, uh, they go about it in, of course, a radically different way. Now, this creates at times frustrating conversations, but it can also produce some uh, some very interesting and fruitful conversations with colleagues who are open to the more theoretical side of things. So when, when we're talking about citizenship and we're talking about um, participation in society, these types of questions that are often raised in my department are having to do with citizenship, um, whereas they're very good at sort of nailing down a number of specific competences and uh, measuring those things and so on, there's often too little attention given to some of the, the more theoretical or conceptual ideas behind them. Now, so, so where this, how this works in, in my department is that I may be uh, the only person in the room who's actually asking some of these questions, what are we talking about exactly, what is it we've measured? 
Uh, have we paid attention to all of the things that mattered? Um, but often I will spend uh, my time with folks in other departments. So I'm just as likely to be or to find myself in the political theory, political science department or in the urban geography, sociology uh, department or over in the political philosophy department, having conversations and engaging with folks around shared interests. So part of that is uh, for methodological reasons and part of that is uh, topically. I'm, I'm probably more likely to match up better with folks approaching some of these issues hmm. uh, from a similar starting point. I see, I see. Let me just pick up there and 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 say you know so so given these these conversations that you mentioned with colleagues in other departments, would you be able to give our listeners a sense of some of the content of these conversations? I mean, uh, uh, what sort of things are you discussing? What are you working on, either uh, in the recent past or, or or in the present? I mean, you mentioned citizenship. Uh, what sorts of things are uh, are you working on? Well, one interesting way to, to answer that question is to say something about how I ended up here, because I get this question a lot. I get it from North Americans and I get it from Europeans. How did you end up here? And I ended up here for, for probably a lot of different reasons, the same uh, answer many people would give to how they ended up where they ended up. But I ended up here in large part because I was already working on a number of sort of political hot-button issues uh, that were very much uh, and continue to be very much um, central to discussions taking place in the Netherlands. And I was also working on topics like citizenship, like integration, um, uh, like religious schooling, um, and so forth, uh, but with with a very specific focus on the Dutch case. And the Dutch case for me, yielded a number of possibilities to examine these issues, given how the school system is designed and 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 how plural plural it actually is. Um, but also the the nature of the political discussions around questions like citizenship, or around things like school segregation, or around things like the right to a religious education, or uh, increasingly uh, on the horizon is the question about homeschooling, which barely exists in the Netherlands. It's uh, technically illegal, although it is, it is um, something that a handful of families actually do. So the Dutch case is, is in many ways an exciting context in which to find oneself examining some of these issues. And I just happen to have been, I guess, fortunate enough to be working on these things within North America when this position uh, came open. And that brought me here to work on these types of questions. And so... The types of conversations that I find myself in uh, are very much the sorts of conversations that you would have in the UK or in, in Canada and in any number of other contexts, but they take on a particular flavor given where we're situated at the heart of the European Union and all of that, all that that entails, where I find my not only my background but my temperament uh, works advantageously is, is my inclination to see things from... Uh, an outsider's point of view. Um, so, irrespective of the topic that we happen to be discussing, I generally, because I am the outsider in this particular um, context in which I find myself, I often have a perspective or a take on things that's perhaps not been uh, considered. Um, and that certainly was uh, the case with my work on segregation uh, in recent years, which culminated in a book a couple of years ago. 
in which I was very interested for a number of years to engage with the work that was being done on school segregation, mainly by sociologists, not exclusively, and was uh, very curious why it was that certain questions were not being asked or certain perspectives were not being considered or even certain policy uh, considerations were not being given much airtime. So, um, so it's been, I guess, in, quite enjoyable and, and quite an adventure to engage with folks in some of these conversations as a philosopher talking about issues that often have implicitly or explicitly a very strong educational um, dimension. They don't always have an explicit educational dimension. Say citizenship doesn't necessarily entail something about education, but of course the link is always there given that, for example, in, our, in this country, uh, citizenship education is a required subject to be taught in school. But of course, if you talk to uh, teachers or parents and ask them, what does that mean? Nobody has any idea. Sure. So, so that leaves a lot of room for discussion and debate. Sure, of course. Now, you've mentioned your, your book on, on segregation and, uh, and schools. And I guess I'm wondering, to your mind, does that uh, intersect uh, very readily with uh, questions of citizenship and so forth? Or uh, is that uh, perhaps a, a distinct conceptual avenue? Uh, it very much uh, joins up with the project on segregation because citizenship was one of the f framing principles of this book. So the book's entitled Equality, Citizenship, and Segregation. And so I use, together with equality, I use the idea of citizenship as a sort of framing device for how we might think about and examine segregation. Why is it that societies around the entire world are deeply segregated. The Netherlands is, the, the segregation indices in the Netherlands are just as high as they are in North America, for example. A few people know that, including a few Dutch people seem to realize that. But Amsterdam, where, we, where we're sitting now, is a very segregated city. So why is that? What, how, how does that come about? Mm -hmm. And I was particularly interested to not just understand the mechanisms that uh, precipitate uh, segregation as an outcome. What are those involuntary mechanisms with which researchers like yourself and I would, that you and I are both familiar with, but also what are the voluntary mechanisms that bring about segregation? So how is it that neighborhoods become uh, segregated even when there are no overt mechanisms of discrimination and exclusion that are um, at work? Um, so I was particularly interested to look at it, but using citizenship uh, as one of my framing devices or framing principles because it is often argued, and, and not without reason, that without the possibility to interact with others different from oneself, one's capacities for citizenship are uh, compromised, severely compromised, because we'll presumably know much less about each other, we'll, we're more likely to buy into the stereotypes and the prejudices that we're surrounded with about other people, um, and this will, uh, this will severely hamper our ability to get along with other people, to work together, to share power with others, and so on, and to engage in democratic decision-making. So citizenship was absolutely central to this kind of conceptual examination of the segregation mm -hmm. issue in alongside of the equality principle. Right. So, so you know, one thing that, that really sort of jumps to mind is the way in which you're able to combine uh, different uh, uh, interests on, on a question. But uh, are there other uh, interests that you've got that kind of branch across questions? Well, I mean, as I said before, there's a lot of topics over the years that I, that I uh, 
bounce back and forth between. So over the years, I've written on topics ranging from giftedness to patriotism, religious schools, voting rights, school diversity, cosmopolitanism, indoctrination, state interventions, parenting. Um, and I've written on a range of different uh, minority groups, particularly uh, focusing on stigmatized and disadvantaged groups. So that would include, in the European context, broadly speaking, Muslim minorities, um, but I've also written on Hindu minorities, written on the Roma, I've written on um, particularly poor urban blacks in the North American context, among others. And uh, I'm particularly interested in how these groups, uh, and group itself is a problematic uh, label, I understand, but, but how different communities or different groupings within these communities uh, choose to define themselves, redirect, redefine, and re-sort of organize what it is that they do on their own terms, and take up those pursuits in ways that matter to them. And that would, of course, entail also their educational pursuits. So that's, an, I think, an ongoing thing. As far back as I've been writing, I think I've been writing about uh, various minority groups. Uh, for the past year, I've been working on work that's not yet published, dealing with... Um, conceptions of the public. And I know that one of your earlier guests also has done some work on uh, the public. Um, so I'm interested in, on the one hand, what do we mean when we talk about the public? And it tends to be one of these uh, ideas that on the one hand is highly idealized, uh, but it also is a highly polemicized sort of an idea. So it's often contrasted with the private as if these were two very distinct domains. And I'm so in, in one project, I'm interested in what this means for education. When we talk about public education, what makes it public? I won't be the first person to actually tackle this, this uh, discussion, but I'm trying to tackle it in, in, a, in a slightly different way from some other folks who have also examined this interesting issue. And I'm also working with as I often do, uh, some empirical folks in a separate project on uh, the use of public space. Okay. So when we talk about public transportation, when we talk sure. about public parks, public libraries, um, what are we talking about and what makes these, these uh, goods or these services or these opportunities uh, public? Right. So this is both um, conceptual work but very much empirically informed by the realities on the ground in the case of education, what exactly is going on institutionally within schools mm -hmm. that we name uh, or proclaim as public. Sure. Um, and has that really been thought through? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, what makes these public spatial domains mm -hmm. public? Uh, is it possible even to say that these things are public in any sort of unproblematic way? Or is it always being infused with with other sorts of, for lack of a better word, private interests and private agendas and so on. So I'm interested in this complexity. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in this type of uh, back and forth. And I want to, as I did with the segregation project uh, for a number of years, I want to try to push beyond the politicizing and the polemicizing of these, these types of conversations. They tend to be very much contrasting rhetorics in the literature, also in, say, critical geography and in urban sociology, these uh, one finds the literature tends to polarize 
mm. concepts. So yeah, and I hear you to be saying that there's sort of you know um, a more nuanced view available, right? That you're sort of uh, breaking up or disrupting a certain uh, uh, kind of uh, approach that uh, is rather narrow, uh, suggesting that there's uh, an interesting uh, uh, perspective that might be available to us on these issues. Yeah, I think so. I mean, not only are the concepts themselves often ambiguous and ambiguously employed in the literature, um, and if important people ambiguously employ ambiguous concepts. Uh, this tends to be replicated over and over and over, year after year, in literally hundreds of publications where a term has been uh, problematically introduced into discussions or used as a framing device. And I think this is not very helpful. So some, sometimes what I find myself doing is being drawn to um, these, these rather ambiguous types of discussions or polarizing types of discussions, and I'm interested in, in how we might make sense of this. And it does seem that much turns on the contextual specifics. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about a, a park, sure. we'll probably talk about the public in a, in a different way than we'll talk about the public in the school. There will be some overlap between these two, so we want to know what we mean when we use a concept like this. Uh, but this the the particulars that apply in any of those two domains may be very, very different. Sure. So I, I think this is one of these threads that links uh, a lot of the, the work over the years that I've done, which is to look to the contextual specifics. So when we talk about school choice, what do we mean by that? Okay, in the abstract, but what does it mean in the Dutch context? What does it mean in the UK context? What does it mean somewhere else? Uh, and how might that not only express itself differently, but what does it mean institutionally? What types of uh, institutional norms are in place that would facilitate the exercise of choice, freedom to choose a school or an education? That brings us back to homeschooling. That brings us back to religious schooling. That brings us back to minority education. It brings us back to all kinds of things. So who are we talking about? What's the context in which they find themselves? What are the specific challenges that they face? What institutional structures do they have at their disposal to actually tackle these challenges? And how do uh, any members of any group, of any community, in any context, choose to define and redefine what it is that they're aiming to actually accomplish? So I'm particularly interested in those particulars, and I suppose that's the, that's the necessary conversation between the empirical realities on the ground and then how we ought to think about those realities and and as I don't have to tell you Winston that sometimes these conversations are occurring sort of completely uh, yeah distinct from from each other so that's not very helpful yeah well I mean on the subject of being helpful uh, I wonder if you might be able to uh, perhaps say a few words about what you think is uh, on the horizon, in the future, for philosophy of education, right? I mean, are there uh, certain questions that we ought to be considering or uh, perhaps certain realities uh, that we are going to be forced uh, to confront, right? Uh, yeah, big question. And, and I'm not sure I have a very impressive answer. Um, I think... Uh, the, the field or the, the sub-discipline of philosophy of education is so varied mm -hmm. and there's so many different folks doing so many different things within this domain that uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable in the first place <laughs> prescribing anything about what or even speculating on what might happen within the field or what these pressing questions might be because I do think they will vary greatly uh, between uh, individual actors on the ground and what their concerns are and how they wish to go about doing things. Um, 
but I, I do think it will be important for those entering the field or, or maybe having, as I once did, a kind of an identity crisis. What is this thing? What is this label? What does it mean to be a part of a particular community that has this identity? I think it is important. There has been recent attention given to this by others. Uh, I'm very happy to, to report, but it's, uh, it is vital, I think, that uh, philosophers engage with what empirical researchers have to say, just as it's equally true that empirical researchers need to listen to what we have to say. I know it starts to sound cliche after a while because uh, we've been saying this for years. We need to, we need to bridge sure. between these two communities, but I think it can't be stressed enough because I do notice that too much of philosophy pays too little attention to, to what's actually going on in any given uh, context. I would also say I think it's really, really important for folks to, and again, this will sound cliche, but consider opposing points of view, particularly within educational circles. And I know this all too well, having taken my PhD from an educational policy studies department, uh, educational topics become incredibly politicized and it becomes extremely difficult to challenge dominant perspectives about any given topic, sure. uh, whether that's uh, English as a second language, whether that's uh, vouchers, whether that's charter schools, whatever the case may be, religion and education, homeschooling, we've named some of these already. But when, uh, when these conversations proceed as if the answer is already known or mm-hmm. as if there is a correct uh, point of view, especially when that is rem- when those discussions are far removed from the contextual realities, I think we've got a problem. So, be- being open to and being actively um, engaged with op- opposing points of view, I think is is really really important. We philosophers are very uh, uh, fond of saying that we should all remain open minded, but sure. we sometimes don't live up to our own norms. And I would finally say, I think. Uh, we would all do well within philosophy of education to stay in touch with mainstream philosophy and to not become a kind of clique uh, where philosophers of education talk only to themselves and only go to each other's conferences and only read each other's papers. There's a much broader field, I shouldn't have to say, but sometimes it needs to be said, there's a much broader field within mainstream philosophy. and, And if we're engaging with these literatures and with these folks, and not just with ourselves, I think it can only make the, the subdiscipline of philosophy of education that much stronger. Michael Mary, as a self-proclaimed wielder of uh, the outsider's perspective, you've certainly given us quite a good deal to think about uh, relative to bringing philosophy of education in closer conversation with other disciplines and fields of study, uh, as well as breaking ourselves from some of our conceptual convictions in the service of a greater truth. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation to talk with you. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.